From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, we'll look at some reporting on why Michigan isn't having the same COVID surge we're seeing in much of the rest of the United States. And if you look at it, put it in the perspective of population, we have a really low rate compared to other states. We're among the the five or six lowest states uh, in the nation right now. It's about 23, 25 cases per 100,000 people. Also, we'll mark the end of the federal pandemic unemployment benefit bump. Without a doubt, you will find somebody for whom it's not a catastrophic thing and they've been waiting to go back to work. Without a doubt, you will find someone who it's a catastrophic thing and they don't know how they're going to eat. But what if the benefits weren't why people stayed away? Will Michigan business owners be able to find the help they need, like all those restaurants with crowds waiting for tables? So if you don't have enough people to work at a certain point, you just don't have enough people to work. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, we're going to bring you some perspectives on the end of federal unemployment benefits related to the pandemic. Without a doubt, you will find somebody for whom it's not a catastrophic thing and they've been waiting to go back to work. Without a doubt, you will find someone who it's a catastrophic thing and they don't know how they're going to eat. That's later in the hour. But first, it has been a wild couple of weeks as young Michiganders get back to business, which in their case is the business of classes. Some students are vaccinated against COVID, but many are not, hence everything that's ensued at your local school board meeting. But despite the fact that Michigan is experiencing some school-related COVID outbreaks, our state is not doing too badly overall if you look at a national COVID heat map. The story has some nuances to it. Mike Wilkinson is a data reporter at Bridge, Michigan. He co-wrote a recent piece on where we stand, and he joins us now to explain. Mike, welcome back to Stateside. Thank you for having me. I think a lot of us were kind of holding our breath as the Delta variant started taking over and case numbers began to climb. But it appears that things have plateaued. Where are we right now in terms of case numbers? Well, right now we're, we're seeing about uh, 1,800, 1,900 cases a day across the state. And if you look at it, put it in the perspective of population, we have a really low rate compared to other states. We're among the, the five or six lowest states uh, in the nation right now, about 23, 25 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, if you think back to the spring when we uh, had that unfortunate surge, the state, Michigan was at the highest in the nation. And by far, it was one of the most unique aspects of the pandemic nationwide, how Michigan all alone was so far ahead. But now we're at the bottom, which uh, is very good, even though cases have risen somewhat in the, in the last three weeks. If we looked at it in terms of a, a sort of a bell curve line, how how does this wave look different than than the last surge that you mentioned? Well, we have uh, it, it's fascinating when you look at if you if you look at where we are from the first day that we hit a thousand daily cases in this current wave, and you compare it to when we hit that same point in the fall and in the spring, uh, right about three weeks after it starts, we diverge. We've just plateaued, and at that point, both in the spring and the fall. And for the most part, there were very few vaccinations, none in the fall, obviously, and, and, and fewer in the spring. Um, that's when the exponential rise really started in, uh, in the state. And that's when, you know, we, we became this outlier for four to six weeks. We were we were, we were way above the rest of the nation. Um, but right now we're, we're we've kind of plateaued and it, it, it's very encouraging from what we see so far. How do you interpret this, Mike? Does it mean that we actually did miss a fourth surge? Well, that's that's the million dollar question, and and, and I don't think any epidemiologist wants to uh, stand on top of uh, uh, a tall building and say it's over. Um, there, there's still so many people in the state who are not vaccinated, 
there are so many people in the state who have never been infected and would not have even any measure of, of, of protection from, from immunity that would have come from that, um, the potential is still there. Um, one of the things that I, I found fascinating uh, is a, a doctor out in California at the University of California in San Francisco, and he's not alone in saying this, that you know there is a benefit to having had COVID if you survive is that you get some measure of protection. The big question is how long does that last and, and how strong is that protection? And what he noted, and, it, and it's very important to look at other states, he noted that Michigan, because of its spring surge, maybe has more of that natural protection still lasting um, than other states. So if you look at Florida and the states that got that are currently getting crushed in the South, most of them did not have an elevated spring surge like Michigan. So the gap between their previous surge and now is far longer in terms of days and months than Michigan. So what that might mean is we have this protection, but as uh, Dr. Peter Chin Hong said, who knows when that's going to end? And it, it will end. I mean, it, it does diminish the, the natural protection you get from having had the infection. And the other thing he points out is that, you know, gaining that protection is really expensive. If When you have, you know, a couple hundred thousand cases and tens of thousands of hospitalization, we also had 4,000 deaths in the spring. So we purchased, for lack of a better word, that protection at a very um, deadly cost. The alternative is the vaccine, which you know, is, is far less expensive in terms of illness and, and, and no deaths. Yeah, that's grim. I don't know if this is something the data can tell us, but I, I do wonder if there are other reasons why things might be leveling off, increased masking or the vaccination rates that we do have. Are, are, do you think those are statistically significant? Well, I, the, the vaccinations clearly play a role. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, when you look at Florida and you wonder why aren't we having the same situation, Florida actually has vaccinated more people on a percentage basis than Michigan has. So that can't be the sole answer, although there is some concerns that maybe those percentages are higher because people got vaccinated on vacation and then went home to Ohio or Michigan or wherever. Um, but the part about mask, masking, and when I have people commenting on it, my story on Twitter, it's uh, social media loves to do. Um, they they suggest that, that people are being more cautious. And, and I don't mean personally from where I am, but um, more people when they go to the grocery store are wearing it. Um, is that different than the experience in South Carolina or Georgia or, or Florida? I don't know. But it, it does appear that some people are being more cautious. I think people who run bars and restaurants are, are aware that there's probably been a little bit of a downturn in, in business, which means there's, there's less person-to-person contact in closed spaces. So yeah, there's no... There's, you know, as you know, I'm at Marissa Eisenberg at the University of Michigan, and the epidemiologist said, there, there's no crystal ball. I mean, we, people want an answer. They want to know if I do this and I do this and I do this, we're going to have this result. And it's, it's just not been that easy. Right. What would you say you're seeing from public health experts? You know, I, I imagine that there's probably still concerns that the Delta virus is not quite done with us yet despite the fact that we are in an enviable position in terms of case rates right now, do you, I, I know you're, you're more of a numbers guy, but are you sensing that that has caused any change in the approach? Well, I mean, they, they've had to make some changes in their models. I mean, they, they, here's a positive one. Their, their mortality rate um, projected per case has gone down because of vaccinations. We have you know, over 5 million people with at least one dose. And I think it's a 4.8 with both doses. So that, that has changed. 
Um, the, the model that used to say if the percent of tests that come back, comes back positive is X, then that means we're going to have this many cases. That's had to change because a lot of people are getting home tests that the state never knows about. So right now, the positive rate is about 9%. It's basically unchanged for two weeks. But it's probably lower because a lot of people went to CVS or Walgreens, got a test, came home, turned out negative. The state never knew about it. So they're not in the equation that, that currently tells us that. But I think epidemiologists, because so many things have been unpredictable about the pandemic, are just unwilling, and perhaps rightly so, to say, aha, it's over. Um, or say, conversely, um, it's going to get worse. Because right now there's a scenario from the University of Michigan that says we could still see 4,000 COVID deaths between August and November. Are, are they going to change that? Um, you know, do they do they totally alter their scenario to fit two weeks worth of data? Kids just went back to school. Colleges just went back. Um, I, I don't know. I, I I think everyone in this in, in this space is cautious, and probably rightly so, because uh, this 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 pandemic and this virus has thrown us so many different curves that uh, who knows which direction it's going to go. I mean, we you know there's another variant out there now, the new variant. So who, who knows? I think that tempers any kind of thought that what's going on right now is is, is a long term positive. No question. Also, uh, there is the matter of schools. Uh, many of Michigan students are back in classrooms this week. Uh, what kinds of data points are experts going to be keeping an eye on for the next couple of weeks? Is the presence of COVID in schools itself significant? Well, I mean, they're going to look at outbreaks to see what, what's going on. Uh, the state just today um, altered what its, what its recommendations are for masking. I don't have the complete details, but it seems like they're going to err on keeping kids more in school um, with more masking. If you know, you're next to someone who's COVID positive, rather than automatically leaving the school to quarantine yourself until you test negative, and they're leaning towards keeping you in school and safe with additional you know, protocols and you know, masking and testing to, to make sure. So the, the, the state seems to be moving in a direction of leaning towards more in-person. So I don't know if that indicates that they're more comfortable with where we are. We know kids, even though there are, you know, I think 20 currently right now in, in uh, Michigan hospitals, and we know kids have proven much more resilient to the virus. Um, you know, there's millions of kids and there's 20 kids in the hospital now. Um, I'm sure the, the parents of those 20 are all scared and they rightly, again, rightfully so. Um, but it seems that the school piece of that will be, will be interesting. And the college piece we saw happen in 2020 when kids went back to school, we saw it happen with outbreaks uh, at, uh, on campuses. It'll be interesting to watch that, um, and hopefully we'll be able to weather whatever comes out of it. Mike, we have about a minute left. I haven't heard anybody bringing up herd immunity as a reachable concept in quite some time. It seems likely that that Michigan's never going to be really out of the woods with this. Are public health experts expecting these cycles of spikes and mutations, the rinse and repeat, to become routine? Yeah, I've read a little bit about that. That people say that you know, right now we're in what's fifty, uh, depending on what what your measure is, fifty to sixty-five percent vaccinated, either one dose or two. You know, there there is some again natural immunity. Is that number ever going to get to ninety-five? I don't know how. I mean, and if you do get infected, I mean, how long does that last? So it it seems that we're going to see waves. Are they going to be like our spring wave, which again was unique, or is it going to be like the current one, one that looks like it might be muted? And again, are we just going to, the immunity that we get is going to be delayed the next wave and it diminish? 
I don't know. And I think there's so much research to be done. What they have said is as long as the infection, I mean, as long as the virus is out there, the way it mutates, we just, they just don't know what's on the other side. You know, would they have predicted Delta and, and it, how virulent it was? I don't know. So it's, there's a lot to do. There's going to be a lot of work for a lot of epidemiologists and public health people for, I think, uh, a very long time. Mike Wilkinson is a reporter for Bridge, Michigan. You can read his recent story about Michigan's apparent plateau online. Mike, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Up next, a young entrepreneur talks about offering something positive with an apparel startup. Each shirt is from eight plastic water bottles. They take the plastic and they get shredded up into flakes and then that gets melted down into little pellets. And then the pellets get strung out and woven together into a yarn and fabric. That's after a short break. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. We have talked and will talk again in just a few minutes about what a difficult time this is for Michigan businesses. It is also a moment of opportunity. Chad Howell, a student at Grand Valley State University, has spent some of his pandemic time co-founding a new apparel line. It's called Forever Great. This is not just the T-shirts and water bottles that you find on the brand's website. Chad also dedicates profits to Great Lakes Environmental Improvement, sponsors days when you can help the company help the lakes, and more. We wanted to hear more about it. Chad Howell, welcome to Stateside. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This all started when you and your co-founder, Jack, were out on a hike, yes? Yep. So my co-founder and I, we actually were neighbors in our dorm freshman year at Grand Valley State. And we always kicked around the idea of starting a business. We'd love to watch Shark Tank. We were always <laughs> watching Shark Tank and you know, throwing around some bad business ideas. And then a few years later, just last year, we were on a hike in, out in Grand Haven, Michigan. And we came out on uh, the beach on Lake Michigan and just saw the beach littered with plastic. And it wasn't the first time either of us have seen this. We're both born and raised in Michigan. We spent a lot of time on the Great Lakes, on the water. And we also see ourselves as pretty environmentally conscious. So, you know, we understand the the realities of pollution and climate change and all of that. But it was just something about that day when when we came across all that, we kind of had an epiphany and an aha moment where we saw the severity of it firsthand. And that really just led us um, and inspired us to do more research on the issues facing the Great Lakes. And once we got into that and stumbled into some more rabbit holes, um, we ended up coming up with something. Yeah. You know, a lot of people see trash out in the wild and think, hey, somebody should do something about that. They might even pick it up. <laughs> but it's not everyone who looks at at waste and says, somebody should make clothes out of that. <laughs> like, what? Mm -hmm. Can you take us through like how you got from wanting to do something to wanting to do this? Yeah. So initially, you know, we kicked around a bunch of ideas. And when we were doing our research, it was just, you know, startling. We found 22 million pounds of plastic enter the Great Lakes every single year. And that number is only set to increase. And also 11 million, just half of that plastic pollution is in Lake Michigan alone. We're based in West Michigan, right along Lake Michigan. And the fact that that holds, you know, 11 million itself was pretty astounding. So once we got into that, we realized, you know, this plastic doesn't really go anywhere. Once it gets out in the environment, it simply breaks down smaller and smaller into pieces called microplastics. And these microplastics can get so small that they end up working their way through the water system and the food chain, and we end up consuming them. There was actually a study 
I believe done out in the UK that says we consume about a credit card worth of plastic every week. And we don't actually even realize it because it comes through our water and through the food chain. Wait, wait, wait. When you say consume, you mean it enters our bodies. Yes, yes. It enters our body. Wow. And most of that is through the form of microplastic. When we were diving into this, you know, we thought, well, where does this microplastic come from? And we found that the largest source of microplastic pollution in freshwater is the clothing industry waste and textile waste. So that is what geared us towards the clothing industry and taking a, you know, a holistic look at what is going on in that industry, how pollutant it actually is, and where can, you know, some changes be made and some new approaches be looked at. So the idea was to come up with this apparel line and and a few other products that were made with plastics to avoid that just becoming part of the the downstream waste. Mm-hmm. And I I know that to get this off the ground, you worked through 77 Idea Lab. That's the business accelerator at GVSU's College of Business. Yep. Can you explain how the lab helped you and and how it made the process different for you? Yeah, you know, we were kicking around the idea and, and we wanted to do this regardless. We didn't really have much direction, but Jack and I wanted to make this happen. And we came across the 77 Idea Lab just through like a school newsletter email. Um, It was at the bottom. You know, it was just coincidental. We came across it. So we sent in an application. Um, You had to submit your business idea. And they chose about eight different ideas, eight teams. And each of those eight teams at the start of the semester got $1,000, which was very helpful. And along with that, we had weekly meetings with our cohort leader who ended up being a great mentor for us, Julian Turley. And they just really led us through the process of starting a business, you know, making sure we we legally have the right things set up, making sure we we look at, you know, who do we want to target? What does our market look like? What is the the reality of this business? What do we have to do to make it happen? And along the way, we also had some more opportunities to gain initial funding through grants. Uh, we we were able to raise a little bit more money through uh, Grand Valley's grants that they they were giving out. And then at the end of the semester, um, after we had you know started it up and, and learned a lot, we had a pitch competition within the, the cohort, within all eight teams, and we were able to win some additional money at the end of that. So they really helped a lot with just some initial funding to, to help us get things moving, as well as a lot of mentorship and uh, resources and education. So let's talk about what you made. Can you describe the design look that you were going for with the shirts? Yeah, so so we worked in conjunction with a manufacturer that uh, was producing this fabric already. And, um, you know, one thing we realized at the time was, you know, we're not engineers. We, we don't have a big facility where we're going to be able to take the plastic and turn it into clothing. So we needed to look elsewhere. We needed to to look for realistic ways to make this happen. And we started working with a manufacturer out in the Carolinas, and we wanted to go with more of an athletic feel and look, which is what we what we started out with. And because that that kind of just fit with our demographic and fit with our our mission, uh, because we wanted it to be a shirt that you can wear outside. You know, you can wear it on a hike, you can wear it when you go to the beach, you can wear it if you want to go out on the boat, um, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the backstory on on the design look. Was it very hard to find a manufacturer? who had what you were going for and who kind of got what you were trying to do with the style? Yeah. You know, as the, as the world's kind of becoming more conscious of environmental concerns, there are more, more businesses and things popping up over the place. So, but there's, there's still not 
you know, readily available. If we wanted to go just on the traditional clothing route and get some cotton shirts or get some polyester shirts, then that would be extremely easy, I would imagine. But we had to do a lot of research and a lot of digging and a lot of looking around to try to find a place for this material to to be made. So so it, it was more difficult, definitely. Is the polyester yarn that's in the shirts, is it made from plastic that actually comes from water bottles? Like, do you know, do you know the sourcing on the plastic component? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So it, each shirt that we have is from eight plastic water bottles. And so how that works is they take the plastic and it gets shredded up into flakes and then that gets melted down into little pellets and then the pellets get strung out and woven together into a yarn and fabric. Interesting. So I've heard that the plastics recycling market in the U.S. has been pretty up and down since China stopped accepting American recyclables a few years ago. Did you find there was much fluctuation in price or had all of that sort of worked itself out by the time the product got to you? Um, You know, there was definitely some, there there wasn't too much fluctuation. I I would say it was pretty fair across the board. However, it was um, more expensive than a typical shirt or a typical fabric to make. So our our costs were a little bit higher just because of the nature of the, um, of the fabric. Yeah. Did you go through much of a trial and error process? Like, okay, well, this shirt looks good, but it doesn't quite feel the way we wanted to or, or similar concerns like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we actually talked to a few different manufacturers and a few different, um, companies and, and tested out a couple of different products, a couple of different uh, materials. And, even with the manufacturer that we we settled with, they they had a few different material options, and we we did a little bit of trial and error with you know we we would get them in, and then we would Jack and I would ourselves you know feel and try them on, and then we would go to our friends, um, have them try them on, feel and see what their thoughts were, and yeah, so that was a little bit of our our trial and error process. How have sales gone in the early stages? Sales have gone pretty well. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to get into some local news stations in West Michigan. We actually launched on Earth Day this past year, April 22nd. We also kind of planned that day as our launch just around Earth Day and being an environmental business. And with that and being students, we were able to actually have one of our friends, classmates here at Grand Valley, help us put together a press release and reach out to some local channels. So we were able to get on the West Michigan Fox and ABC and that really helped drive a lot of traffic to our website and really helped us boom right away. And that was extremely helpful because we've done essentially everything through our website and social media. So it's been a lot of word of mouth. And then we've also done a couple pop-up shops throughout the summer, uh, one in Muskegon and then down in South Haven, we were there for the Blueberry Festival. So that was good to just go and interact with the public face-to-face, which is something we haven't obviously been able to do for a while. But yeah, I would say sales have been going they're going fairly well. You know, we're excited with, with where we're at. We're excited with where we're trending as well. And we're hoping to just keep chugging along. Chad, it's amazing to see a new company that's making better use of materials. But there are other aspects to sustainability, like what happens to products, even eco-friendly products, when we're done with them. I mean, back when T-shirts were all 100% cotton, they could be recycled into rags pretty readily. But as more and more of our clothes and home goods are made with polyester, we hear that there are fewer downstream uses for those clothes, that they, they can't be recycled quite as easily. And they, they may have a different, sometimes a shorter, shorter shelf life. Have you had any time to think through what's going to happen to the shirts that Forever Great makes when people are done with them? 
Yeah, definitely. That's something that we we were actually encouraged to think about by some of our mentors as we were studying the business. And, you know, it's a difficult problem. It's a difficult problem to solve. Patagonia, they're a clothing company, and they, they've put together a pretty good somewhat other solution to that. They have a program called Warnware in which they'll have their customers ship them back their clothing after they're done with them. And then they rework that into new new clothing. So that's kind of the general solution that a lot of businesses have have tried to aim towards. And that's that's something that we're hoping to get into down the road and hoping to be able to have a program in place for customers to send it back instead of throwing it away or instead of doing something else with it and then finding solutions for us to to use it. But it is definitely a big problem that a lot of people are facing. And you know, we're kind of in a hypocritical position because we're encouraging people to buy our clothing and, and support the mission and support the use of, of greener alternative clothing. But at the same time, we're still encouraging, we're, we're trying not to encourage that too much because obviously we would like people to start consuming less. And the average American throws away 82 pounds of clothing a year. And we would obviously love for people to start consuming less, buying less, buying secondhand, that sort of thing to reduce their footprint when it comes to their closet. So that, that's kind of a balancing act that we've had to think about and navigate and, and start coming up with solutions for. Chad, this started as a student project, but are you going to try to keep the company going? Yes, definitely. It really did start as a, as a student project. We kind of just wanted to see what we could do with it, where we could go. And now based on where we're at, I'm excited and I'm excited to, to keep it going. And we were also recently just in uh, the Grand Valley Magazine, and that gave us some good publicity as well. And through a lot of this this process, we've been able to you know build some more connections and gain some more opportunities, and we're hoping to to leverage those as time goes on. So we're definitely aiming to keep this moving as a business. Chad Howell is one of the co-founders of Forever Great Apparel. Chad, it's nice talking to you. Yes, it's nice talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. We were aghast to learn last week that Dutch Girl Donuts, a longtime pastry mainstay in Southeast Michigan, is closing until further notice. We've also learned that Detroit's unique cuisine, Asian corned beef, is shutting down multiple locations, both because of a reported lack of staff. And you know this, everywhere you look, there are eateries from fast food to fine dining with help wanted signs in the windows. The service industry has been hit hard in the pandemic. It's caused owners to cut back, not because of a lack of business in many cases, but because a lack of employees available to work. That includes Zingerman's Roadhouse in Ann Arbor. It has stopped Tuesday service due to staff shortages. This is a first for the business, which is typically packed every day of the week. R.A. Weinswig is co-owner and founder of the Zingerman's family of businesses. We've been checking in with him periodically throughout the pandemic about how his small business has been faring. Ari, welcome back to Stateside. And to be back. What was the point at which you realized you were going to have to cut back on, on service hours for Tuesdays? Well, again, it's, it's not just the roadhouse. I mean, every one of our businesses and everyone I know is going through similar conversations. I mean, we're all challenged. So when it comes down to making the decision, it's just looking at how many people can work on a given shift. And if you don't have enough people at some point, it just becomes untenable. And people who work in our organization have been awesome about helping and working extra and whatever. But at some point it becomes pushing people beyond where we want to push and where they want to be pushed. And so I'd rather get out front of it and try to do the right thing. And it's still far from ideal for any number of reasons, but 
you know, just try to make the best we can of a challenging situation. Yeah. Were there tangible things happening in the kitchen or in the floor that told you this was not going to work out? Or was it just a matter of filling out the timesheets and realizing there weren't enough names to go in the empty shifts? Yeah, it's the latter. I mean, it's, you know, people are being great and everybody's trying to do their best, but there's only so much a human being can do. And it doesn't help to burn people out. You know, everybody's already working a lot and trying to make it go. And it's been a stressful 18 months for the whole world, including us. And, uh, you know, this is just one more piece on top of that. So, but yeah, when you fill out your schedule, every restaurant, every business, I would imagine that's in a service industry for sure. Like you have to have X number of people to actually function. So if I'm doing, you know, writing work, I can move it into the late hours of the night and do it at a different time. But if you're serving or cooking, we sort of have to do it when the customers are there by definition. So if you don't have enough people to work at a certain point, you just don't have enough people to work. The thing that gets me about this is that Zingerman's is uh, pretty well known for having business practices like giving employees benefits and paying a livable wage. And even so, it's still tough. Well, we can always do better anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I've talked to people who are in far worse shape than we are, but I think, you know, this is our work is to get through the situation. But I talked to a friend the other day. He's got a restaurant in another part of the country, 200 seats. They only have two servers on Saturday night, so they can only do about 50 guests. <laughs> it's it's everywhere. So I why, I don't really know, but it is what it is. And we're going to work together collaboratively and do our best to get through it. And I appreciate all our staff's hard work and all our customers' patience. This week marks the end of $300 a week extra in federal unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you might be able to fill some more shifts after that point? I mean, that would be nice. I I don't know. We're not getting flooded with applications yet. Um, Ah. But I guess we'll see what happens. No one really knows, I don't think. I mean, there's lots of articles circulating, but I think people are theorizing based on a limited number of conversations or small surveys. And, you know, we're going to all find out together. I I do know also this week uh, in Congress, they're pushing to get the additional $60 billion into the restaurant uh, revitalization fund. Uh, the original bill was $120 billion and uh, in March, President Biden's bill had $28 billion, which was used up in three weeks. So there's about 200,000 applications uh, for support that went unfilled. So this bill is intended to help that. And uh, they did a survey, which I can't say how many people it was, but about 80% said that they would close uh, in the coming months without support. So it's uh, it's challenging out there. Ari Weinswig, co-founder of Singerman's. Ari, thank you so much. No, thank you. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll check in with a public policy expert about what it means for our economy now that those federal unemployment benefits that happened because of the pandemic are ending. People don't really understand how few people are covered by our unemployment insurance system. Stay with us. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Federal unemployment benefits tied to the pandemic ended this week. This does not mean an end to all unemployment payments, 
But the state figures at least 440,000 people will now receive about $300 less weekly. And several questions are on our minds about how this is going to change the math for workers in Michigan. Betsy Stevenson is a professor of public policy at the Ford School at the University of Michigan. Betsy, welcome back to Stateside. Hi, it's great to talk with you. So uh, just one clarifier first, when we say federal benefits, there are actually four classes of payments that have been made out over the course of the pandemic. Uh, so just to get that procedural thing out of the way first, what do you think are the biggest implications about ending the unemployment benefits at this point, benefits that were boosted during the pandemic? Well, let me just say, first of all, that those four programs um, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to think about this, and even I get them confused with all their acronyms. So I think it's useful to understand more conceptually what they did. And, um, you know, sometimes what they were doing was trying to give people access to more weeks of benefits. So if you were unemployed for longer than what the state would normally cover you, which is typically about 26 weeks, um, you got that extension of the number of weeks available. The thing I think people are most well aware of was that extra $300 a week that all eligible claimants got. Um, But then there were also programs that really were about giving benefits to people who don't qualify for regular unemployment benefits. I find in every recession that people don't really understand how few people are covered by our unemployment insurance system. If you just didn't quite earn enough over the past year, maybe you were a part-time low-wage worker, you just don't qualify. Or you are an independent contractor, a freelancer, you're self-employed, you don't usually qualify. So you get nothing. And we realized in COVID that nothing was going to be a really bad answer. And I think it was very impressive how we were able to you know, use our unemployment insurance system to get benefits to so many people. But today we need to be asking, is that baseline that we have, those programs that we have that cover such a small percentage of people who lose their jobs, is that really adequate going forward? And I think that's really the big question. Not even so much what's happening right now with the Delta variant and who's losing their benefits. I mean, it's a personal crisis for some people. Let me be clear about that. But there's also a big policy question, which is, hey, our system leaves a lot of people out and we just kicked a big chunk of people off the the system who just maybe had the bad luck of losing their jobs in August instead of, you know, a year ago. Is this really the right unemployment insurance system for us? I mean, knowing what you know about some of the ebb and flow in the pandemic economy and the reasons that people may have for staying out of the workforce, is this necessarily a catastrophic thing that's happening for folks uh, folks in the market right now? Without a doubt, you will find somebody for whom it's not a catastrophic thing and they've been waiting to go back to work. Without a doubt, you will find someone who it's a catastrophic thing and they don't know how they're going to eat. And that's always the question when we're thinking about policy, which is how do we balance the two? You know, I, I think that the view is that the pandemic is enough under control and that states have enough resources that they should be able to get many of these people back to work that were relying on benefits. But let's be clear, there are going to be people who don't get access to benefits, who aren't able to go back to work yet, or who aren't able to find work yet. And, you know, it's a deeply unfair system 
that often it's our most vulnerable workers, the ones who earn the lowest wages that we exclude from the program. Would you expect to see fewer help wanted signs and fewer positions posted as as we get to this week in which the federal benefits are ending, either because people choose to return or out of necessity? Well, look, there's two things that are going to happen. There are going to be some people who choose to return to work because they have to, right? And they've lost their benefits. And there are going to be many other people for whom their family income, their household income falls and they cut their spending quite dramatically. Not only is that a hardship for them, but that means businesses aren't getting that spending because they're not getting that spending. They may not need to hire as many people. So there are two effects on employment. And I do not think that this is necessarily we're going to see you know, 7 million people hired because 7 million people lost benefits. In fact, I assure you that we will not see 7 million people hired in the month of September with benefits um, having ended. And so the real question is, you know, how many additional people go back to work? And is it worth the hardships that others are going to experience to have given them that incentive to get back to work? You know, we get a few hundred thousand more people back to work, but there are millions who aren't able to put food on the table. I think we have to ask ourselves whether we thought that trade-off was worth it. What do you think some of the major shifts might be in work or maybe, I guess, even our work cultures because of because of this in COVID? I, I feel like I started this pandemic with an awful lot of assumptions that, well, you know, healthcare would surely reopen as a topic. That hasn't necessarily been the case. Um, what, what else is on your mind about what might be different? So I think there's been an overemphasis that unemployment insurance is what's kept people out of the labor force and kept people from uh, responding to all the help wanted signs. You know, what what I see having happened is really a sort of broad rethinking and reshuffling. So we do see quits at, you know, pretty high rates, very unusual rates for coming out of a recession and even higher uh, in many industries than where quits were prior to the pandemic. People who are quitting are not getting unemployment insurance. So this isn't about unemployment insurance. This is about people saying, wait, this job has changed or I've been forced to really look at this job and this job is not for me. Do you think it has more to do with the availability of of more positions right now or or again, just the reality checks? Look, if you're looking out there and you're seeing almost 11 million job openings, it's definitely a time to think, is this a job for me and should I be applying for other jobs, should I be looking to do something different? Um, because there's a lot of opportunities out there. So it's not surprising to me that many people are taking those opportunities. They're rethinking what they want to do. We're seeing a large number of people making uh, shifts between the industries and occupations that they work in. But I, I think it's, we also need to realize that American households built up a lot of savings. So there's been a lot of emphasis on this is about unemployment insurance. Unemployment insurance meant that people didn't go back to work. People had built a lot of savings during the pandemic, not just because of unemployment insurance, but they got stimulus payments from the government. Many households kept working. You know, there was a lot of demand, even for lower wage workers, essential workers who felt like I've got to keep working. How else am I going to keep earning And then they got some stimulus payments from the government. They were able to build a little bit of savings. Those cushions have given people some freedom. 
And I think that freedom is what's allowing people to say, wait, maybe I don't want to do this job where I'm poorly treated or where there's not the benefits I want or there's not the flexibility I want or where the pay just doesn't compensate me for the really harsh working conditions. And I do think you're seeing people who are are looking for something that's going to be a little bit safer and perhaps a little bit more pleasant than I think what's happened to service work over the pandemic, which is it's become more dangerous. You know, people, service workers got COVID, they get exposed to COVID. And frankly, they've been subject to a lot of abuse. Our national argument over whether we should mask, whether we should vaccinate, how we should treat people, our service workers have been the frontline soldiers in that battle. And it's it's let them in for a lot of verbal abuse. Exactly. You know, a, economists expect that if you make a job worse, then fewer people want to do it. And that puts upward pressure on the wages. It's exactly what we're seeing in service work. We made it worse, and now we're going to pay for it. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the end of federal unemployment benefits and some related issues with Betsy Stevenson. She's a professor of public policy at the Ford School at the University of Michigan. Um, Do you think that employers, uh, by and large, have seen the light on unhappy workforces? I mean, whenever I feel like I feel like there's been several variations on a story where people say, I just can't I cannot get people to apply no matter what I pay. It's do you, how much of that do you think is situational uh, or versus I mean, is this is that what is that what it looks like when wages are forced upward by by market conditions? Well, you know, I will tell you what I hear more is I can't get people to apply. And then you ask, how much did you raise the wage? And I mean, you you know, you hear a lot from companies that didn't raise the wage that they weren't able to hire and the ones who did raise the wage found it a bit easier to hire. You know, I I do think that there's were companies out there that thought this was temporary, that they should hold the line on wages and that, you know, next month or in the summer, they'll be able to get away with paying less. And I don't think that that's right. So I think they're going to have to adjust to the fact that there just are not a lot of jobs that people are going to be willing to do for $9, $10 an hour anymore. And we did see some wage compression, which is different from just wages going up. What we're seeing is wages at the bottom going up, I think somewhat disproportionately. And you know, it's been a long time coming since we've seen that. What we've been mostly seeing is wages at the top rising with no movement on wages at the bottom. And we're you know, seeing that growing inequality I think the pandemic forced some wage compression, and that's probably a really good thing for the United States. I wanted to ask you about some uh, shifts in the overall economy, too. We, America has, has had a service-based, uh, a strong service-based component to its economy for decades. And we talk in broad swaths about America and Michigan not making as many things anymore. But just prior to the pandemic, the gig economy was just was going gangbusters. And during the pandemic, we saw many of those services and startups pick up a bit. Uh, What do you think uh, we'll talk about when we talk about how the components of our economy changed in this time? 
you know, the U.S. is a service-based economy. More than 80% of our private sector jobs are in the service sector. I think what was really startling for this particular recession is we've never had a service sector-led recession before. If you go back to, you know, the 2007 to 2009 recession, employment in the goods-producing sector declined by 16%, and it hadn't fully returned to pre-recession levels as of February 2020, right before the pandemic hit. In contrast, there was only a 4% decline in employment in the service sector in that recession. And by 2012, we had all the service sector jobs back and it kept growing for you know, the next nine years. That's where most of our growth was. Um, if you look at this recession, it was employment in the service sector that declined by 16%. So that is really, really unusual. Um, and the that's why we saw so many jobs lost by women. That's why we saw so many jobs lost by minorities is minorities and women disproportionately work in that service sector. That service sector is the majority of jobs, but it is also where more women are relative to men and more you know minorities are relative to whites, particularly in the lower paid jobs. Um, I think if you're you know you're asking how did the economy forever shift? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing was our change, the change in how we use technology and how that technology will crowd out some service jobs. You know, we we changed how we travel for business. I don't think that's ever going back to what it was prior to the pandemic. I think it was on a very, very slow path to changing forever prior to the pandemic. And the pandemic was like, you know, put it on the high speed train. And so, you know, there's now many meetings you would do by Zoom rather than getting on a plane. And I think we would have gotten there by 2030 without the pandemic, but we're there now in 2021. And that's just a pretty tough adjustment to the airline industry, to the hotel industry, um, even to thinking about dining, because so much of dining that is around these centers where you have a lot of business travelers coming in depend on that business travel. I think that's really uh, changed. I think people will work from home a lot. And that will also change again, like where we want businesses to be, where we want restaurants to be. You know, if you typically were in your office, you know, from dawn to dusk, then you wanted, you know, services right around your office, like your dry cleaner there. So you could pick up and drop off when they were open, you know, maybe on your lunch break. If you're working from home three days a week, we don't need as much dry cleaning. And maybe you're just as happy if your dry cleaners in your home neighborhood rather than your work neighborhood. So I do think there's still a lot of shakeup to happen because we haven't gotten people back in the office and we're starting to realize that, you know, the great return to the office that we thought might happen this fall, I think is not going to happen quite as fully as, as people might've been expecting. And the same thing's true with a sort of the return to business travel, I think is going to be slower to recover. And I, I do think these things are sort of permanently changed in a way that will uh, mean that we don't really go back to pre-pandemic ways of doing things. Well, likewise, are there any indicators, like if, if I were to ask you this question, like when's the right time, we started out talking about federal benefits. If I were to ask you when's the right time to end it, 
Are you looking at any different indicators than you used to, given all those shifts that you were just talking about? Well, when I was thinking about these federal benefits, I want to be clear. I think it's the right time to end an extra $300 a week. The idea of the $300 a week was that you know, we normally only give people 25 to 50% of their pay in unemployment insurance. It's supposed to be just enough to make sure you can pay the rent and eat. And during COVID, we really wanted people to stay home. And we thought, boy, that, that's going to be a hardship. We want to give some people something closer to 100% of their pay. And that's why those extra payments were added on. I think we're done with that. But the idea that we're not going, we're going to have a system where we don't provide unemployment insurance to part-time low-wage workers or to gig workers or to the self-employed, I just don't think that's a sustainable permanent model. So I don't think it's about extending these benefits for another six months or 12 months or six weeks. I really think it's about redesigning our unemployment insurance system so that we cover more workers, including those workers who are gig workers and independent contractors and self-employed. Betsy Stevenson, she is a professor of public policy at the Ford School at the University of Michigan. Betsy, it's always great talking to you. It was great talking with you, too. And that's Stateside for today. Our show is produced by Aaron Allen, Mike Blank, April Van Buren, and by our director, Mercedes Mejia. We have additional help from Elizabeth Harlow and Lucas Pollock. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Stateside's a production of Michigan Radio, a broadcast service of the University of Michigan. I'm April Bear. Thank you so much for listening. See you Thursday.